Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love us, you see us, and you care about us. You care about every aspect of our lives. God, you see us in our greatest moments of triumph, and you see us in our darkest moments of tragedy, our best moments and our worst mistakes, and you love us in it all, through it all, and in spite of it all. And so, Jesus, I pray this morning for just a beautiful spirit of grace over this service as we speak about something that matters deeply to the Father's heart. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. 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 So I'm, I'm speaking this morning to close out our Relationship Goals series, which I think has been a great series, by the way. I'm speaking on sacred sexuality. I want us to start by uh, reading one scripture to kind of frame where we're going today, and that's Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 32. By the way, I think this sets up the whole idea of why I believe you can even connect those two words. I think many people would not connect the words sacred and sexuality. But actually, I believe in the Father's heart, they're very much connected. And it's because of this. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. You know, little wonder that we can call sexuality a sacred thing when in the Father's design and plan, It was intended to be an earthly picture of something supernatural. That when a man and his wife come together, it's meant to be a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. It's a picture of something holy. It's a picture, an earthly reflection of something eternal. Christ and his bride, the church, is supposed to be sacred, supposed to be pure, eternal, selfless like the love of Christ. But yet I recognize as I jump in to speak about sexuality in church this morning that there may be some of you in the room feeling a little bit like a pastor friend of mine who was getting a vasectomy recently, true story. He's partway through the vasectomy when the nurse looks up and says to him, oh wait, that's where I know you from. I go to your church sometimes. (laughs) So maybe you're feeling a little bit of that this morning. It's like, great. I came today, right? Maybe you're feeling a little bit like it's awkward, feel a little vulnerable, wish you could be anonymous like my pastor friend Sean felt in that moment, right? But I'm going to do my best to make it a safe place, okay? I'm going to make it a safe place for us as we talk about it. It's going to be okay. And I want to acknowledge some things before I get into the Word. Can I just lay out a few, I think, kind of important guideposts for us in the spirit of this conversation? Acknowledgements, number one. Sexuality is a sensitive subject for some. So I get that. I want to acknowledge that right out of the gates. It's sensitive. It's deeply personal. Um, For some, it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, depending on your upbringing especially. And yet that alone is not reason enough to not talk about it. So therein kind of lies part of the tension. Because it's important also. It's something that the Bible speaks a lot about. And it's something that the the Father cares a lot. and And it affects our lives. So I think we ought to speak on it. But I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that it's sensitive for some. Second thing I want to acknowledge is that shame and guilt have been mixed in with the gospel for a lot of people, especially in this subject. We have all kinds of shame and guilt attached to things of sexuality. Feel like maybe a failure or people have told us that we're a failure. Maybe because of choices that they've made or maybe because of choices other people have made or actions other people have taken that have affected them too. And so the last thing I want to do today 
as I speak on this subject is add to any feelings of shame and guilt. The third thing I want to acknowledge is the church, the church at large through the centuries has often done a lousy job on this subject. So through silence at times or abuse at times or you know, gender roles and all kinds of stuff, the church has oftentimes done a poor job. I think that's an understatement. And not only the church, other institutions have failed to prepare and protect the people. And uh, I think that's given rise to all kinds of things that we're experiencing even in our day. You know, uh, to repent, I think, is so important. I think as believers, whether or not we feel personally, directly, specifically responsible for some of the things that we see down through the generations, I think collectively, we ought to repent for the harm that's been done. And uh, at the same time, all of those failures combined don't justify those who would abandon Scripture, uh, preach love without truth, (laughs) or abandon holiness in an attempt to kind of repair the breach. I think we should instead repent and turn back to God in His way. Hmm. Number four, none of us are qualified to throw stones here. So if you think there's some part of me that put my hand up, me, 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 I want to preach on this because I am so uniquely qualified uh, to preach on this subject. No, that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm not preaching on this because I thought it would be fun. Uh, I have approached this with a great deal of thoughtfulness, with a great deal of prayerfulness, but I am a father in this house, and one of the things that comes with being a father in the house is you don't have the luxury of opting out of the so-called difficult conversations. That's part of what a real father does. So, you know, the the, the church has had a 2,000-year history. The eight years of Liberty Church are like a blip on that radar. So, you know, I think that doesn't excuse us, though, from pursuing the way of Christ in our daily living. And this is a topic that matters to all of that. Amen? So I get that. I'm not qualified. None of us are to throw stones. And the fifth thing is this is complex. This is complex. And I cannot, please, underline, cannot handle this subject adequately in the time I have this morning. So let, can we relieve each other of that pressure of expectation that I'm some, somehow going to cover all of this. If, if you want to sit this morning and pick through like what I don't say or I don't get to or what I can't balance, you can't possibly in the time that we have. I just want to acknowledge that this is simply a conversation in a series of conversations that the house of God needs to be having. And we're going to, as a follow-up to this series, actually send some recommended resources, books and podcasts. In fact, one of my good pastor friends here in the city, John Tyson, recently recently preached a a series at his church, a church of the city called The Controversial Jesus. He dedicated three entire messages to this subject. One of them was an hour and a quarter long. It's good stuff. I mean, gender and the trans community. And I mean, he really got into it. I mean, the whole whole thing. And so I want to kind of, rather than what he said... (laughs) What I want to do is I want to add to that conversation this morning. And by the way, last year, the message I did on sex and sexuality was our number one most downloaded podcast. So we're going to add all of that resource into this conversation. So last thing, and then I'll jump in. You're free to disagree with everything I say this morning and still be welcome here, okay? So here's my encouragement to you, though. Because this is a place where you're, we don't have to all agree. Goodness, in our generation, doesn't it feel like sometimes if you disagree with me, you must hate me, be against me, you're against everything that I stand for? I just don't think the kingdom works that way. We can disagree and walk united. But here's the thing. If you're going to disagree, can I encourage you to disagree thoughtfully, to disagree prayerfully? I would encourage you to disagree biblically, 
because I think if you, you Google anything, you can come up with somebody to support any idea, right? But, I, you know, we as a church, we stand on the Word of God, and so I'd encourage you to go to that as your source too. And I would encourage you to disagree relationally, because I think some of the biggest errors that we come into personally is when we isolate ourselves, and we walk outside of community, and we get all up in our head with our own ideas. So whatever you believe, let your conscience be clear that you submitted it to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and we can walk this out in community, okay? So our values as a church are simple. We talk about them all the time. Love, truth, freedom, family, and others. Love, truth, freedom, family, and others. And the message today, what I'm going for, is the intersection of love and truth on this subject. I think, you know, truth without love isn't received. So if there's no love, there's no bridge for the truth. There's no open door for the truth. But on the other hand, love without truth, I don't believe that's real love at all. So we got to have these two things come together, both love and truth. Speaking the truth in love, as the scripture puts it, is I think the place where we experience freedom for the sake of family and for the sake of others. That's what I'm going for this morning. Love and truth together, believing for it to lead to freedom. So my first point this morning, if you're taking notes, is let's take it back to the start. Let's take it back to the start. Some people think Christianity is kind of old-fashioned. And uh, personally, though, I take great comfort in the fact that my beliefs have been around for thousands of years, followed by billions of people, that I didn't invent this myself. That's actually good news for me, that this is not a brand new, untested idea, but that thousands of years of Christian living have proven these ideas to be eternal. And I believe when we lose our way, and I think our society largely has, in my opinion, that we should go back to the beginning. You know, I often find I'm walking around the house and I get into a room and I was like, wait, what was I doing? Does that happen to anybody else? You get in a room and you have no, what do you do at that moment? If you're like me, you go back to the start, right? You go back to, oh yeah, I was doing this and I thought of this and I got distracted by 17 things along the way. So I wanna take us back to the start. I wanna go back to the operator's manual. I wanna go back to the beginning. Because what happened in Genesis, what happened at creation is the foundation for everything that follows. And so I want to read to you, perhaps if you're familiar with Scripture, a familiar passage, but I hope to show you new things about our current context and the things that we face in our generation. Genesis 3 verse 1 says, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for, the, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, Also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of them both were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man said, sorry, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? 
As I read this passage preparing for this message in recent weeks, it struck me that sexuality was immediately impacted by the fall. The very moment that sin comes into the world through that choice of disobedience, sexuality was affected. What did they say? I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So shame comes. The minute sin comes into the world, shame is attached, and it seems immediately attaches itself to sexuality. A moment ago, one chapter ago, the Bible says they were naked and unashamed. And now with sin in the world, suddenly shame is attached. They're trying to cover themselves with fig leaves, by the way. How long was that going to last? That was an interesting clothing strategy, right? God, at least a couple chapters later, makes them clothes out of animal skins and kindness, right? But shame comes in and fear comes in. Fear comes in. It says they hid. Their first reaction to sin was shame and fear. And who do they hide from? They hide from God. They hide from their source. They hide from their creator, the one who loves them. Now they're hiding. They're not just hiding from anyone. They're hiding from God. See, we act today in 2018 as if sexual confusion and identity issues are a new thing. We act like this is a new phenomena, like what a thing that we're wrestling with in our day that just came up. It's like, okay, no, if we read the Bible, this was there in chapter three. The minute sin was there, so was confusion and all kinds of sexual issues. The fact is when brokenness came, it affected sexuality. But don't you think if brokenness affected our sexuality that Jesus' plan of redemption includes healing in this too? What's God's question? Now, when God asks a question, by the way, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. Like, man, where are you? Like, like he's lost his power. No, he wants man to understand, to locate himself. I hid. And, and, and he says this interesting thing. He said, who told you you were naked? That might seem like a funny question. But you know what God's really saying, I think, is who are you listening to? Where are you getting your identity from? Because I didn't tell you that. I didn't tell you you were naked. Who told you you were naked? Who have you been listening to? And suddenly things have come into the very identity and self-image of man that came from a source other than God. I think God's asking us the same question today. He's asking our generation, who are you listening to? Where are you getting your identity from? Who told you that? Because see, what the enemy goes after is he questions a few things. One thing that he says is, did God really say? What's he doing there? He's, 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 he's undermining the word of God. He's questioning the word of God. Did God really say? And I haven't got time to get into this in detail, but suffice to say, in the last 30, 40 years, the word of God has never been more questioned in the area of teaching on sexuality than in the 2,000 year history of the church. There's a concerted effort to walk back biblical scholarship. Second thing, you won't die. So he questions the Word of God, then he questions the authority of God. You won't certainly die, right? So what's he trying to do here? He's, he's questioning God's authority. And then thirdly, he says, you'll be like God. God knows you'll be like Him. You'll know good and evil. So it's kind of twofold. I think he's appealing to their pride, for one thing. That was his, that was his fault too, wasn't it? He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be worshipped, and he was cast out of heaven. But he appeals to that in mankind too. You'll be like God, but I think he questions something. I think he questions the goodness of God. Isn't that what he's really questioning? Like, God's keeping the good stuff back from you. He's a killjoy. God just, he knows that's the good stuff. That's why he told you, you can't have it. God's not for you. He's against you. I think the enemy is still pursuing the same line of strategy today. Neil T. Anderson said, the major strategy of Satan is to distort the character of God and the truth of who we are. 
He can't change God, and he can't do anything to change our identity and position in Christ. If, however, he can get us to believe a lie, we will live as though our identity in Christ isn't true. What a powerful thought that is. He doesn't have to change God or change us or change the truth. He can't. But if he can get us to believe lies about ourselves and our identity, then he, in a sense, has already won, at least in as much as it comes to us personally. See, I believe one of the hallmarks of the ongoing, what they, the so-called sexual revolution, what some might argue is a devolution, is that people are choosing their own identity or listening to the wrong source. It's not God anymore. There's many aspects to this, and it's a complex subject. But one, one, one example, for instance, is last I checked, there are 71 different genders on Facebook now. They call it gender dysphoria. Is one of the, uh, uh, the associations with that is gender dysphoria, which is defined as being feeling unsettled and unhappy with your gender assignment at birth. Now, I get that this is too nuanced and too complex of a subject for me to do justice to in the time that we have, but I think the through line for me as a follower of Jesus, I think the through line here is the further we as a generation and a society get from God, the more we will see confusion affecting every area of our life. Dysphoria is a good word for it. Now, they're speaking about it in the context of, of gender, but I think all of us experience a certain dysphoria. In fact, I believe the world is not our home. I believe the world is broken and things, we should feel unsettled and unhappy at, in general with the way that things are, but that's not attached to our identity, who we are in Christ. The world is not our home, but are we going to our creator as the source? You know, recently our washing machine broke. And uh, we're, we're renters, and so I called the landlord, she put me onto the manufacturer. I called the manufacturer about getting it repaired, but they were very insistent about one thing, is we need to repair it, because if anybody else repairs it, the warranty will be void. Right? They made it. They say they're the ones who know how to fix it. Well, I think it's very much the same thing in the things of God. We experience brokenness in our life, but rather than go to the manufacturer, rather than going to the one who created us, we go to everybody else, and then it, we wonder why it seems like his promises are void. It's like, God, you said this, and you said this, but, it's, but God's saying, hey, come to me. <laughs> Let me fix you. I, you're, I fearfully and wonderfully made you. I knit you together. I know you. Are you coming to me as the source? And by the way, you might think, okay, Paul, this is Old Testament. This is Genesis. All right, well, Let's go to Jesus in Mark chapter 10 then, where he says in verse 6, at the beginning, he's quoting Genesis, everybody, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And since they are no longer two, but one flesh, like what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let's go back to the start. Number two, sexual sin is an attack on your identity. It's an attack on your identity. I think it's good to see it for what it is, what the enemy's intention is in this area. It's actually an attack on your identity. And I wanna show it to you from 1 Corinthians chapter six. Now read two passages of 1 Corinthians chapter six, and I wanna show you how all at once, sexual sin is on the one hand, like every other kind of sin, and at the same time, a different kind of sin with a different kind of effect on us. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, long list, right, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, key word, 
but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, skip to verse 18. It says this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. I'm going to come back to that word body. It's got an interesting root word. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So I think it's good to hold two truths in tension here. On the one hand, what we recognize is that sexual sin is listed amongst swindlers, slanderers, all these other things, drunkards. It's in the same list. In other words, I believe on one level, any kind of sin is sin. And sexual sin, without the blood of Jesus and His redemption, has the same power as any other sin to keep us from eternal right standing with God. So that's true. And I think sometimes the church has almost elevated as if it's some kind of super sin, unforgivable sin, and I don't believe that's the case. And yet the Bible introduces a tension here, which is the way that sexual sin affects us is a little different. It says that he who sins, uh, he who commits sin sexually sins against their own body. Now what's interesting here is the Bible's drawing a distinction. It says, hey, there's a whole list of things that we call sin. And he said, and that's what some of you were, key word, man, key word. That's what some of you were, but washed, cleansed, and redeemed. Thank God for that, amen? Literally, thank God for that. But then he says, you sin, when you sin sexually, you sin against your own body. That word is hard to translate properly into English. And there are different ways of understanding it. One of them is to really actually say sins against their very self. Sins against their nature. In a sense, sins against the imago Dei, the image of God, distorts the identity of God in us. Sexual sin, in other words, is an assault on your identity, which is why, you ever wonder why the Bible says to flee sexual sin in this passage? Every other kind of sin, it's like resist, resist, resist. Why does the Bible say on this one, just run? <laughs> Forget all this resisting, just flee. Why does the Bible say that? Because it has a different power to break down the very person and nature of God in us, amen? Now, he's a healer. And I, I believe while there's breath, there's hope. So I don't say that to condemn or heap judgment on anybody this morning. That's the last thing that I'm trying to say is, but I am saying the Bible gives us a warning that its effects are powerful, amen? Number three, our temptations are not our identity, our temptations are not our identity. There's a few things we kind of mix all in together. We, we like, we'll lump temptation, attraction, desire, and sin all in the same sentence like they're the same thing, but they're not. Temptation is not automatically sin. Right? Otherwise, how was Jesus tempted for 40 days and 40 nights and without sin when he went to the cross, okay? So Jesus was tempted, and yet he was without sin. So we have to be careful because in our day, I think more than ever, people label themselves by their temptations, by their attractions, but you can face temptation without allowing it to define you. See, there's an intersection we call choice between temptation and acting on that temptation, which is where the sin comes in. Martin Luther, the theologian, famously said, my temptations have been my masters in divinity. <laughs> Anybody else feel like you've done a PhD in temptation? Yeah, amen to that. So what's he saying? He's not saying that he's like the chief of all sinners. What he's saying is that he's faced a lot of temptation, had to make a lot of good choices. And I, I believe the same can be true for us. First Thessalonians 4, verse 3 to 5 says, God's will is for you to be set apart for him in holiness. 
so you keep yourselves unpolluted from sexual defilement. Yes, each of you must guard your sexual purity with holiness and dignity, listen, not yielding to lustful passions like those who don't know God. What's supposed to be a defining line between those who do and those who don't know God is the not yielding. It doesn't say don't face temptations. It says not to yield to them as if we didn't follow God. Attraction is a powerful thing and, and it's, a, it's potentially a good thing. If we didn't have attraction, then even in the context of marriage, we might not have any babies, right? So attraction is designed by God. It's a powerful thing. But then attraction outside of marriage is a type of temptation. It's naive to think, by the way, that marriage takes away all of that. I think I kind of thought that as a single person. If I just get married, it's like, that's a little naive, right? As if all attraction is suddenly going to fall from our eyes. No, we have to learn to manage this. No wonder self-control is mentioned so many times in the Bible. No wonder Solomon, when he wrote the book Song of Solomon, said three different times, do not arouse or awaken love before it's time. Do not arouse or awaken love before it's time because attraction is a powerful thing. And yet as true as that is, it's dangerous for you and I to build our identity around our attraction. I think people do this more in the area of sexuality than any other area of life. I feel this attraction, I have this temptation, I struggle with this desire, and therefore I am fill in the blank. But that's an identity that God didn't give you. But we do it more in the area of sexuality than any other area. And I don't think we would allow this in, in other types of temptations or attractions or desires that people feel. Like, take it out of sexuality for a minute, where it's very loaded, and our day, people have strong opinions. Let's just talk about anger for a minute. Okay. Wouldn't the world be a dangerous place if we started telling people who struggle with anger and who are tempted to be angry all the time, hey, just be who you are. You're angry, embrace it. You were born that way. No one should tell you you can't live out your angry you, so you do you, right? If we told that to angry people because that was a temptation and attraction, that was a leaning that they've had as long as they can remember, the world would be a dangerous place. No, the world accepts, even those who don't follow Jesus, accepts that angry people still have the power of choice. And that they have the choice to not act on their anger, even if that's a tendency that they face constantly. In fact, I know that to be true because if you went ahead and acted on your angry self, hurt somebody, and stood up in a court of law and tried to make the case that for as long as you can remember, you've always been an angry person, you can still go to jail. I mean, we don't get out of, we don't get out of the consequences just because we feel it's a deep-seated temptation we've always faced. So we make a big logical leap when we define ourselves by our attractions or our temptations. Tim Keller said, uh, the Bible says our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. It's a powerful thought, right? Who are we building our identity on? And by the way, I wanna push this a little bit further. You know, when it comes to different forms of sexual sin or attraction, you know, I don't believe that the idea or the line of argument of being born this way implies God's blessing. I think this is where Christians get nervous. I think some Christians are very nervous that some scientist is gonna be able to find a way to prove that somebody is so-called born this way. So a person might've felt an attraction for as long as they can remember. And this is just me speaking. My personal view is that I do think that some people are born with same-sex attraction. You might disagree with that, but I do. I think it's a combination of nature and nurture. I don't think it's as simple as just a choice people make. But play it out. Even if science can one day prove that, that people are born with certain attractions, would that prove that that's God's perfect design for us? No. 
I can think of hundreds of things that you can be born with that are not an inference of God's blessing. In your physical body, in your emotions, in your spirit, in your, in your environment. There are many ways that people are born in this world that doesn't imply that it's God's perfect design for us. No, the whole narrative of human history is it was perfect, and then sin came, and it was all broken. And that's why a loving Heavenly Father sent His sinless Son to redeem us and restore things back to Him. To suppose that everything that happens in this world must be just how God designed it to be is to miss the entire point of the blood and body of Jesus and our redemption. The world and humanity are not just as they should be, and that's why we need Jesus more than ever in our generation. Number four, what God blesses has not changed. What God blesses has not changed. In the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus. They're trying, as they often did, despite being religious leaders of their day, they were always trying to lower the bar. And uh, so what they're doing here is they're trying to lower the standard for divorce to suit themselves. And this is what they said. Pharisees came to him to test him. That's their spirit. And they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. By the way, this is a very polite kind of Jesus put down because th this is like, like they're Bible scholars and Jesus is like, have you read? Genesis, right? He takes them right back to the side. You don't kind of pick that up, but that's how I kind of read this. In the beginning, God made them male and female, the Creator. And He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man can give a wife, his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But this was not the way from the beginning. See, Jesus is taking it back to the start. They're like, Jesus, that's not very like, you know, first century of you. This is so old-fashioned, Jesus. Get with the times, Jesus. Well, what's his response? He says, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Yowzers. Jesus just ups the ante. By the way, we'll come back to the word translated sexual immorality, but the word, the Greek word was porneo. And the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> like, this is a high bar, Jesus. So do you think Jesus backs down now? The disciples are freaking out. Jesus is a high standard, Jesus. And what's he say? Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those, listen, who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So Jesus says, hey, if you want an alternative to faithfulness in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, celibacy. Just Selah drops the mic. It's like, whoa, Jesus, that's a high bar. And he uses in the middle of it this phrase. He says, he talks about except for what he calls sexual immorality, porneo. Now, this word is really important for us to understand because it helps us understand how Jesus addressed all kinds of sexual sin in this one passage. See, what he says here is he brings us back to God's design. And by the way, Jesus is not neutral on this. Some would wish he was. But he says sex is for marriage and marriage is between a man and a woman. It's very plain. This is what God blesses. And then he calls everything else Porneo, which we translate sexual immorality. But you know, his audience understood porneo is everything outside of what you just described. 
man and a woman in the context of marriage. So sex outside of marriage, porneo, pornography, all of these kinds of things. Um, homosexual relationships, all of this is what he would, you know, prostitution, all of this was what the Bible called porneo. Jesus is not, he's not neutral. So some would say, well, Jesus doesn't teach about homosexuality. He doesn't have to. He addresses what God blesses and what God's design is. And he lets us know that everything, he doesn't get into the myriad of ways today that people transgress from God's design. He doesn't list them all out because he simply addresses what it is that God blesses. Now, I'm not here to make moral judgments about other people and their choices, especially those who don't even follow Jesus or share what I believe. What I am trying to do is lay out what I believe it means to follow Jesus if you hold the scripture to be holy. By the way, one other thing that I hear today as people talk about these things is I hear people talking about monogamy when it comes to uh, sex outside of marriage or when it comes to gay marriage. And I think it's interesting, it, it seems like a good line of argument because it seems like monogamy is kind of a religious thing, right? So it seems good to attach the idea of monogamy, but the, the trouble is I believe that when we are outside of God's design, His primary concern is not monogamy, it's holiness. Or to put it a different way, when we're sinning, being more committed to sinning is actually not necessarily a positive thing when it comes to following the way of Jesus. So monogamy alone does not make what God has called unholy to be holy. So there's three dangers that I think we must face in our day. And I'm, I, I want to kind of, I want to keep moving for sake of time. But I think there are three things that loom large for us to wrestle with in our generation. And the first is what I would call selfish sexuality. Selfish sexuality. There's a curious tradition that they had in uh, Hebrew times, which is that if a woman who'd been married had her husband pass away before they had conceived children, then the tradition was that the husband, sorry, that the, that the, the father-in-law would have a, the surviving brother sleep with her in order to provide for her an heir. Now, it's strange to us today, almost offensive to us today, but in the context of provision and her family lineage and legacy, I understand the intention of it. It actually took place in, in, the, in the life of a woman called Tamar who was a daughter-in-law of Judah. Now, God had killed the son of Judah who'd been married to Tamar because he was evil. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Old Testament times, they're wild. And she's left without an heir, without a husband. And so Judah says to another one of his sons, Onan, I know this is a strange passage. You're gonna get a kick out of this. Genesis 38, verse eight, Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing an offspring for his brother. And what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. But you never heard, hear that passage in church. I double dog dare you to preach that passage, right? <laughs> What is this? Selfish sex, that's what it is. Selfish sex. He, he appears to be keeping his covenantal responsibility to his brother's widow, but what he actually does is he uses her. It's about what he can get from her and not what he was supposed to give to her in the context of that moment. Selfish sex, he used her. He made it about getting and not giving, but giving and not getting is the very essence of following Jesus. I think a lot of our Modern sexuality is kind of the spirit of Onan at work, if you could put it that way. I think pornography is like that, for instance. It's about getting without giving. It's about satisfaction without commitment or covenant. It's about objectifying others, who, by the way, statistically oftentimes are victims of human trafficking or abuse themselves. 
I heard somebody say recently, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but that, that it shows far too little. See, it's dehumanizing. It's objectifying. And all the while, even science outside the kingdom is showing it's creating powerful neural pathways, a potent form of addiction. And we, I think as a parent, what a responsibility to know that it's just one wrong click away from being at the fingertips of my children. We've got to be so wise in our day. And it's a major driver of divorce. Interestingly, studies also show it's a major driver of sexual dissatisfaction, even in the context of marriage, when people have abused or exposed themselves to porn. So another thing I would say on this, and you might disagree with me, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here. I think in our day, people have reduced sexuality to like an appetite, like any other appetite. I get hungry, so I eat. I feel sexual craving, so I relieve them. I heard somebody say recently, this is a terrifying statement. Somebody said, Tinder is like seamless for sex. Now, I'm not here to condemn anybody. I bet there are people in the room that met whoever you're sitting with right now online, on an app. So God bless you. I'm not here to condemn apps or rail against the interwebs. Uh, I am saying there's an insidious culture emerging out there. Very assessing people in an instant, very objectifying. Instead of something that should be sacred and holy and pure and full of wonder, we have this kind of ordering sex mentality is a terrifying thing. You are more than a profile pic or a snap, snap judgment that somebody makes of you. And we gotta be so careful that we don't create those patterns in ourselves that one day when we do get married, if we spend our whole single life resisting the Holy Spirit instead of the devil, and spend our single life, you know, satisfying our every desire instead of, instead of pursuing Him. We shouldn't, be su we shouldn't be surprised if even in the context of marriage, we struggle to be faithful. So, let's be aware of selfish sexuality. Number two, comfort religion. Comfort religion. You know, just like there's comfort food, you know, which tastes good at the time, but isn't really that good for you in the long run. I think there's a version of religion that's kind of the same thing that people like, which is really just designed to be for their comfort. It feels good, but it's ultimately actually bad for you. See, I believe people actually can change. That's not always a popular truth today. People can change. Otherwise, it was just cruel. When Jesus said to the woman caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more, he believed that she could change, that she could change her ways. And yet at the same time, here's attention, I think great harm has been done to people struggling in the area of sexuality when that chain has been forced on them by other people. Not change that they pursued or change that they wanted or change that they chose, but change that was forced on them. I read an article, maybe you read it too, just a few weeks back from NBC. I thought it was tragic, stumbled across it by accident or so it seemed. I think it was intentional for this message of a young man who'd come to the conclusion that he was gay. And... Uh, the article, it's always hard to read these articles when you don't hear from the parents, and you don't hear from the church that he goes to. So you know it's kind of only one side of this story, but even the side that I was hearing was tragic. You know, the, the, the story describes the churches he went to as anti-gay. And I don't know if that's true, but it's a tragedy just to be labeled that way. And then ultimately it says that he's, he was forced by his family to go to what they call gay conversion therapy, felt like he failed that. His family broke down as a result, kicked him out of the home. That's a tragedy, regardless of how it came about. And he ends up then not being able to afford college and ends up on the Ellen Show. So he goes to college and there's a religion minister staying on his floor. And I, and I, I wanna read you this one quote, which I think 
explains the tension of our times. He says, the residential minister lives on my floor and she told me she was there to support me as someone who'd been through things like this with religion. It meant the world to me to hear from a spiritual advisor that had my back. And here's what Ellen replies with. She says, that's what religion should do. It should comfort you and support you for being the person that you are. Isn't that an interesting statement? Now, I don't say by drilling down on that that I agree with everything else that happened in this article. I think the whole thing is a mess, a tragic mess. But I think it's fascinating to me that that is the world's belief about religion. I don't believe in the true sense of the word, even following Jesus is religion, but that's a story for another day. What I know is this, I'm not God. That's good news. (laughs) I'm not God, and I can't really change anyone, but God does change people. He does heal people, and yet... He doesn't always seem to do the miracle, and I can't explain that because, as I already said, I'm not God. So I have to live within that mystery. And yet the expectation of religion here is really troubling to me. Religion should comfort you and support you for being the person that you are. Do you think that's what it was like to follow Jesus? I actually don't know if the disciples would buy that definition. I feel so comforted. I feel so supported for just being the person that I am. There were definitely moments of comfort and support. Don't get me wrong. But it sure wasn't the day he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. It sure wasn't the day he said, take up your cross, follow me, die to yourself and your own way of living. It's fundamentally a thing of sacrifice. It's not just about being, and it also depends who's telling you who you really are anyway. Is this according to who I believe I really am or is this according to who God says I really am? I guess the tension is no one can make that choice for you, right? No one can make that choice for you if it's a sacrifice, if it means trusting Him and a journey of adventure and change and radical faith. That's a choice that no one else can make for you or the implications of living out that choice. Let me give you one more and then I need to pray. I'll get the worship team to come. I think the third danger that we face is memory loss. Memory loss. I think the reason people love that old hymn, Amazing Grace, is because it reminds us who we are. There's dangers in the world, but one of the dangers in the church is we forget where we came from. That's what I'm calling memory loss. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I think that's why we still sing it centuries later. It's humble. That's where we need to stay, church. We need to stay in that humble place. Because what tends to happen is when we first get saved, we're all lit up with the wonder of forgiveness and grace and mercy and second chances. But as we walk it out, we start to get a little self-righteous or maybe a lot. I wasn't that messed up. I'm kind of a good guy. You know, all the language becomes us and them. God judges them, but He loves me. I think the church ought to be the last place on earth that's full of condemnation and judgment and hate. If we have any revelation at all of what Jesus saved us from, let us just keep those words on our lips. He saved a wretch like me. Took us out of the pit and put us on the rock. Andy and I came into marriage with so much brokenness and baggage in the area of sexuality and just walking out, forgiveness, restoration, following Jesus getting wise counsel, bringing sin from darkness into the light. To see God at work in the very most intimate parts of our lives and marriage has been a beautiful thing. So let's be humble people, okay? Let's be gracious people. Be people of life and light and hope. And remember, He's the God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances, amen? 
While there's life, while there's breath, there's hope.